1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, a partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such beauty, for such glorious descriptions of what the kingdom of God is like, what it means to be in the place of God, with God, with God's people, under God's rule and authority. And God, we just pray that as we have been camped out here since the beginning of June, looking at what it means to love and to love well, to love like God loves, we ask that you would once again, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to realize these things. To protect and to keep us, to keep me from leaving this building with simply, with a merely intellectual fodder uh, to pack into our minds, but that we might leave here changed at the heart level. And not just changed at the heart level, but changed at the body level. Changed in our willpower. Changed in our habits. Changed in our relationships. For that, God, we realize that that does not happen overnight. And it doesn't happen by a compelling experience. It, ha- it happens, we believe, by walking with you over a long course of time. And so, Lord, we offer to you our hand. We ask that you would take it and that you would lead us into the way of everlasting life. We wanna be like you, we wanna know you more, we wanna grow in you, and we wanna tell people about who you are. That your name and your fame would explode across the city of Santa Barbara, the coastlands, the state, this country, and this world to the farthest reaching, unreached people groups in the world. We want people to know and to be a part of the kingdom of God and to know the Son of God. We pray these things would start in our own lives and in our own church. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Once upon a time, uh, actually a few once upon a times, my refrigerator died, and Brianna and I did what we always do when our refrigerator died, uh, dies. We take out all of the imperishable, or excuse me, all the perishable items, which are, you know, everything in the refrigerator. Uh, there have been, yeah, for the most part, I think this has happened like three times in our, hey, <laughs> this has happened like three times in our, uh, in our place of residence, and for the most part, I think two out of those three times we have uh, realized that and got everything out. There was one time we just didn't realize the power was off, and I think it, it, uh, it was like that for maybe a day or two, and the fear of God that like wells up when we start thinking about that carton of eggs or sour cream or just about anything in our refrigerator, we began to, we began to dread opening up the door to that thing because we knew it would be just just hideous. Uh, whenever the refrigerator dies, we do what everybody does or should do. We take out all the perishable items, the things that spoil. We tend to leave the imperishable items because it's no problem, which is like two or three things, right? It's the baking soda, it's the uh, filtered water, and it's the soy sauce, all the important things, at least in my life. But those are, you know, there's a handful of things that can stay in there for 10 years and they'll never go bad. Uh, if you understand that, and I think you do because you're laughing, uh, you'll understand what Paul is about to say to people like you and me, to people that are, that are endeavoring to follow Jesus. There are perishable items in the spiritual life. They're not bad, they're just perishable. They're temporary and they will last a certain amount of time before they're not needed anymore. And in this context, the things that are perishable, the things that will perish eventually, are in this context, you know, chapter 12, chapter 14, are these spiritual gifts. Things like uh, teaching, prophecy, knowledge, even things like leadership. And this has been his argument all of this time. These things are needed for us to grow in the present time until that day that we see Jesus face to face and we will be made complete as soon as we see him. I think the apostle John said this, when we see him, we will be just like his, he is in a moment. But until now, Philippians, Paul would say, we press on towards the prize. We're not perfect yet. We haven't arrived there, but we press on and we grab hold of that goal because Christ has grabbed hold of us as his prize. And so we're on this journey of maturing as believers. Wherever you are in whatever stage of your spirituality that you are, you are meant to move forward in the spiritual life. And so spiritual gifts, as we talked about last week, in depth, are there to move us forward in the Christian life, to grow in things like love, to grow in maturity, to build one another up, and all of them are incredibly important and needed, but they are temporary. When we see Jesus face to face, you will have no need of me to teach you. Why would you want to listen to me when Jesus is sitting right in front of you eating a croissant? <laughs> You'll have no need of prophecy because he will be right there. And you will know all of the plans that he has for you. You'll have no need of knowledge because you will know You'll be made complete. You'll have no need of leadership because we will be uh, surrounding the throne of our ultimate leader, our great shepherd. 
So those gifts are for now, for today. There will be a day when they are no longer needed. They are perishable. But there are some things in the Christian life today that are imperishable. Paul says, now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. In other words, Paul is saying, leave these things in your fridge. Leave these things where you can access them. Focus on these things, we could paraphrase. Default to these things. If you know nothing else, keep going back to these three things. These are the most important ingredients, I think he's saying, in the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. If you're growing in these three things, you're probably doing everything else right. If you're growing in these three elements, you're probably on the right path. Let's talk about these. These are the things that will carry over into eternity. I don't know that I'll have a teaching gig in heaven, you know? But faith, hope, love, all that we have invested into those right now will still be carrying themselves out for all of eternity. Therefore, it is an investment to care about these three things and to cultivate them right now. Because all that you pour into those three things, faith, hope, and love, will continue to be with you, I think what uh, Paul is saying right here, for all of eternity. This is the best investment perhaps you have ever made. Let's talk about these. Let's talk about faith. Faith is uh, not merely believing something. It's certainly not merely acknowledging something to be true, like I believe that. That's our kind of definition of belief. Uh, Jesus' definition, Paul, the other apostles, when they spoke about faith, they're speaking more than just merely acknowledging something to be true and not doing anything about it. Faith in the Bible is a deep-seated conviction and the readiness to act based on that conviction. I'm getting this definition from uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 11, that first verse it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is the conviction that something is true that moves you to act uh, based on that conviction. Uh, if you need an illustration for this, Jesus is constantly giving us living illustrations of what faith is like by always pointing to little kids. In fact, he would belittle his like 12 main disciples and apostles by pointing them to little kids. He would rebuke them, embarrass them a little bit, tell them, you need to be more like this little kid. What was he speaking about? He's speaking about the faith of a child. Uh, if any of you have interacted with kids in your life, you understand a little bit about what I'm talking about. I have two kids, five and three, the three-year-old, his name is Jude, and at this point in his life, he is a reckless bulldozer. And he just loves to move things, run. He loves to push things over. He loves to jump, and he has no hesitation. This is something that uh, we've just kind of built up over time together. Uh, to give you a specific example, he loves to jump off of high places, okay? I don't know where he got that. I don't know if I taught him that on accident, but he has this habit of climbing up onto things and jumping off of them into my arms, now, at first, it was kind of a game. It started off as just like dad's son thing. Like, he would climb. I'd be proud of him. And then he'd, he'd kind of reach out his arms like this, right? He'd be like, 
catch? You know, or he wouldn't even say that. He'd just be like, eh. he'd be like, yeah, jump into my arms. I've got you. And he was really hesitant. And he'd like, he'd like get down like this and like touch the ground and like just, just like turn away. And it, it would just be this whole scene. And then finally he'd jump and his face would light up. Over time, that hesitation started to abate as he realized I would always catch him. And he would just roll up onto tall uh, spaces. Now he's a little bigger than he was when he was one or two. He can, he can climb up to crazy places. And he'll climb up to them, and he'll jump into my arms. Now he no longer tells me that he's going to do that. He just assumes that dad is going to be there to catch him in his arms. This is very scary to me because I don't always know if he's climbed up onto the kitchen sink or, you know, uh, the car or anything like that. I will just be walking, minding my own business, and oh, there's Jude, and he's sailing in the sky at me like Batman. And my, uh, my arms just kind of uh, flash out, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I saw you. That would have been crazy. There's no, it seems like there's no category in his mind that I will not be there to grab him, to catch him. I believe, and it, you know, if you're a dad or you're a mom, you have kids like that, you understand, like you build trust with your kids and they'll do anything with you most of the time, except clean their room, you know, like they'll do anything like crazy. This is what I believe is what Jesus is referring to when he speaks about faith. It's not just, I believe that my dad is 36 and he lives in my house and he's generally benevolent toward me. No, faith for Jude means I can jump from the roof and my dad will be there. He will catch me. Dad is down here thinking we're both gonna hit the ground if you do that, but my son is like reckless belief and conviction that this is true. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, verse 17, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will enter it. Diving in, face first, because Jesus said some things and you believe it so much. You have no reason to doubt him or question him. You just enter in. Now, this is a faith to believe and act. That doesn't mean there isn't room to doubt or to ask questions at first. God actually in other places in the Bible calls us to calculate, uh, to take account, uh, to count the cost and to calculate the cost and to see what we're getting into. There's room initially to ask questions, you know, and to struggle with doubt and to figure things out. But as your faith is growing, this is the type of change you should see in your own heart. You're like, okay, I really believe that what Jesus says in, the, in his word, what the Bible says in his word is, is crazy, but it's true. I believe it. And so you step out into the deep end of the pool and you believe that Jesus will catch you. The second thing is hope. I love how Hebrews chapter 11 verse one ties faith in with hope. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. They are connected. Hope is that confident anticipation of something that you have not seen yet. This allows you, hope. what hope does is it allows you to confidently endure whatever it is that you're going through now because you know that the end goal is gonna be worth it. It's the future that's dragging you forward, not the present which is discouraging you. Hope is that thing that gives you confident endurance. And Paul would say in, 1 Corinthians, in a couple chapters, 1 Corinthians 15 verse nine, that our hope is in the resurrection to come. 
that Jesus rose from the dead. He's gonna raise us from the dead. He's gonna wipe every tear out of every eye, eradicate suffering, evil, and injustice, and make all things new. That is where we're headed. That is where we're going. And so that affects the way that we live now. Hope changes the way that we live now. Faith makes us step into that. They're so interrelated. So when faith and hope collide, when conviction to act meets the confidence to endure, you have a a recipe for extravagant love. When you begin to believe everything that Jesus says, even the hard stuff, enough to do something about it, and when you believe that the, uh, the ultimate and eternal outcome is actually very good, you will start to love like you've never loved before. God's love is extremely powerful in this regard. It was uh, in the time frame of Jesus and the disciples that the prevailing worldview at that time was not Christian per se, it was Greek. The prevailing worldview at that time was that if you find your rightful place in the universe, you know, uh, get the right job, uh, study the right topics, fit in, find the right you know, spouse, be happy. If you can just find your rightful place in the universe, you'll find harmony. And this is how people lived uh, from the 6th century uh, BC. For six centuries, this was the prevailing worldview. That's how people uh, tried to be happy. I just need to find where I'm supposed to fit in this universe. It came with its flaws. Uh, for example, it didn't take away things like the sting of death. Like when loved ones died, there was no hope to carry them through that. They would just try to keep plugging on and to fit uh, into life as usual. Uh, fast forward to the first century when Jesus comes in on the scene, lives his life, preaches about the gospel of the kingdom, dies on the cross, rises from the dead, tells all of his disciples to talk about that. And in the centuries to come, in that century to come, these disciples begin to speak about a new life in Christ. And no longer was it, you just need to find your place in this life because this life is all you got. The disciples started to say, this life is not all you got. This life is just the beginning. And it could be the worst life you've ever had or it could be the best one. It depends on who you're following into the next life. And all of a sudden, this hope began to well up in people in the first and second and third centuries who had a hope that transcended this life. They began to realize I, I could still see my, my dad who passed away, my son who died from the plague. I could still see this, you know, I can live forever. And all, all of a sudden, a hope, a comfort began to pop in on the scene. Uh, historians and philosophers tell us that the, this Greek stranglehold on the way things were for six centuries was almost overnight decimated as cr- the Christian worldview began to assert itself on the world almost overnight. What were people being compelled by? They were being compelled by hope. You mean there's hope in this life? That this isn't all I have going? Hope after death came through an act of love in the cross that proved stronger even than death itself. And once people started to realize that death couldn't hold them down because it didn't hold Jesus down, they began to live differently. It was more than just the comfort of knowing my, my loved ones, I'll be, I might be able to see them again. 
But hope in Christ actually began to open people in the, in the early centuries to risk their own self-preservation for others who were less fortunate. That's what hope does. It spurs us to really love other people because we're not fighting for the little bit that we have. We realize that we have so much, more even than this life can contain. And when you mix that with, with reckless faith, what you have is a church that moves out into the dark corners of the world into the destitute corners, into the marginalized communities, into the places that no one else will go. Why? Because they are compelled by love, as Paul would say somewhere else. Christians began to do this shortly after Jesus. They began to love recklessly because they had nothing to lose and everything to gain. I'll just give you one example. 165 AD, about one generation after Jesus, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. Historians tell us that during the 15 years that that plague lasted, a quarter to a third of the empire's population died. Almost a century later, another second plague or epidemic struck the Roman world. This was in 251 to 266. At the height of what became known as the Plague of Cyprian, 5,000 people a day were said to be dying in the empire of Rome. 5,000 a day. Two-thirds of Alexandria's population, one of the big cities of that day, was uh, wiped off the face of the map. Rome, which was largely pagan, was completely ill-prepared to help the sick or deal with mass death. Since pagans had no belief in immortality, right? It's just this life. And since uh, other, other belief systems like the Stoics demeaned any sort of heartfelt compassion, they were all about just biting your upper lip and just, just moving forward. Don't show emotion. Get over it. Press on. Uh, they often lacked compassion for others. So for those groups, plagues, sickness, suffering were meaningless and cruel. The basic response, therefore, from most people in the world at that time was flight. I'm out of here. I'm going to save my own skin. Doctors, pagan priests, leaders fled the country in a frantic act of self-preservation, leaving the sick and the dying to fend for themselves. I want you to compare that to what was going on in the small, fledgling community of Jesus. In stark contrast to hopelessness and fear, Christians at that time were showing how their faith made that life, their life, and even death, meaningful. Cyprian, for example, one of the bishops of that time, almost welcomed everything that was going on, not in a weird, like, uh, cruel way, but like, hey, this is a great opportunity for the church to rise up and to show people the love of God. He was so overwhelmed by a sense of faith, confidence, that the members of his church, the Alexandrian church, were accused of thinking of the plague as a time of, of festival. They were just so full of joy. They weren't rejoicing in the suffering. They were rejoicing in the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Instead of fear and despondency, the earliest Christians uh, expended themselves in works of mercy that simply dumbfounded Rome. One author by the name of Charles Moore uh, writes this description of what was going on. I just want to read this to you. Uh, 
He says, this love took on very practical, concrete forms. In Rome, the Christians buried not just their own, they buried pagans who had died without funds for proper burial. They also supplied food for 1,500 poor people on a daily basis. In Antioch, in Syria, just right down the road, the number of destitute persons being fed by the church had reached 3,000. Church funds were being used in special cases to buy the emancipation of Christian slaves. During the plague in Alexandria, when nearly everyone else fled, the early Christians were risking their lives for one another by simple deeds of washing the sick, giving them showers, you know, offering water and food, and consoling the dying. That's all they were doing. Their care was so extensive that Emperor Julian eventually tried to copy the church's system, and it failed, however, because the Christians were doing it out of love and not duty. Pagans at that time could not help but notice, uh, and I define pagan as secular in this uh, case, usually worshiping all the plentiful gods of Rome. And they couldn't help but notice that Christians not only found the strength to risk death, but through their care for one another, were much less likely to die. Christian survivors of the plague actually became immune because a lot of them uh, were actually, they were the first ones to get afflicted and they built up their immune system. In fact, those who were most active in nursing the sick were the very ones who had contracted the disease earlier on. But they were being cared for by their brothers and sisters. In this way, the early Christians became, in the words of one scholar, a whole force of miracle workers to heal the dying. In the midst of all of this, the people of the Roman Empire were forced to admire their works and dedication. And they would say, look how they love one another, being heard all across the streets of Rome. This is one early example of faith, hope, and love coming together. Just a little bit. This pattern of faith, hope, and love actually shows up all over the New Testament. These aren't just three random, clever Uh, and compelling words that Paul kind of threw together at the end of 1 Corinthians 13 because he needed an outro, right? This is actually a creed. This is a combination that shows up all over the New Testament. I want to read you about 10 of them. And you'll see where faith, hope, and love pop up in all of them. I don't want you to have to analyze or count. I just want you to hear the, the sense of these passages because almost all of these carry... Uh, they, they feel like these exhortations, these comforting words, these charges from the apostles to people who are going through a lot of stuff. It's almost as if uh, these writers, and there's uh, very many, there's uh, the, at least three writers in about 10 different instances writing to people in all sorts of walks of life that are following Jesus, and they keep using these three words to exhort, to challenge to comfort, to encourage, and they're glorious for that reason. So just hear them, let them wash over your soul because they're meant for you as well. Look at Romans 5, verse 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Galatians chapter five, verse five through six. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves wait for the hope of righteousness eagerly. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, uh, the the works-based model of that day. But only faith working through love. Ephesians 4, verse 2 through 5. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Colossians 1, 4 through 5. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... And the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. See what's happening here? Leave these in your refrigerator. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet of the hope of salvation. The church was born out of faith, hope, and love. Bold faith, resolute hope, and the extravagant love of God. It changed history, and it can do it again. But we need to be captured by these three things once again. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 through 12, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. What a great exhortation to all of you in this building who serve so tirelessly other people in the church, volunteers, team leads, home group leaders, in the kids' ministry, behind the scenes, all throughout the week. Nobody sees you. God sees you. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in the serving of the saints and still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, verse 22 through 24. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up with love and good deeds. First Peter 1, verse 3 through 8. This is a long one. This is my favorite in the list. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, in this you rejoice. Why do you rejoice? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Can anyone say amen? I've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revealing of Jesus Christ when he comes in glory. I added that part so you know what he's saying. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Last one. First Peter 1, 21 through 22. Who through him, you are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. You were raised, uh, from, uh, God who raised Jesus from the dead gave him glory so that your faith and hope would be in God having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see this? What should be in the refrigerator of the Christian life? If you have anything in there, let it be faith, hope, and love. You're saying, what does that even mean? It means faith, believing what God says believing what God says. That probably assumes that you know what God says. We should be digging into this thing like our life depends on it. And then believing in it, praying through it, soaking it up, stepping out into it, trying it, trying the just the craziest promises we come across. It means hope, looking forward to what God will do despite what we're going through right now. And if that is happening by the power of the Spirit, those things uh, colliding together might lead us into a relentless love for God and for other people. The Bible testifies over and over that your life counts for something right now. Right now. Not just in the sweet by and by. Not just in another time and in another place. Everything that you do Every way that you behave, everything that you put into your mind, everything that comes out of your mouth, everything that you chase and pursue is a small investment into an eternal piggy bank. It matters. You are being formed by who is up to you, but you are being formed to live an eternal life. And Paul is saying to you, make sure you invest in the things that will last. Believe what God says. Look forward to what he will do. And lead a relentless life of love for others. In fact, I love the way that uh, good old Eugene Peterson translated this in his message Bible. Same verse, verse 13. Basically summarizes what uh, took 30 minutes for me to say. But for right now, until that completeness, when Jesus comes, we have three things to do to lead us towards that consummation. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love extravagantly. And the best of the three is love. 
I want to end with just that last phrase, the best of the three. If you need to be about anything as a Christian, be about love. Perhaps even by chasing God's love, our faith will grow. We will develop hope in what God is doing. It's as if Paul, Jesus, is holding up that thing by which every other thing that matters is deeply connected. If you chase anything in this life, make sure it's love. If you don't know what love is, learn from Jesus, who is love in the flesh. Read about him. Pursue it. That's why we're going through the Gospel of Luke. Pick it up in chapter 11 tomorrow and read it for love. Ask the Holy Spirit, what does love look like? I'm going to read about Jesus' life. Holy Spirit, teach me about the love of God in Christ. Because the, the catching punchline and the hook of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is this. And this is what a lot of people will do when they read 1 Corinthians 13. They'll say, oh my gosh, love does all of these things. I need to be more patient. I need to be more kind. I need to stop being rude. I need to, uh, 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 to stop uh, loving wrongdoing. I need to stop doing all of these. I need to do more of this stuff. They get up, they try to do it. They fail miserably. Why? Because Paul isn't talking about you. He's talking about love. We do not have enough natural or human resources to be like God is. This is supernatural, man. This is the kingdom of God being unleashed among sinful people. Paul isn't telling us we need to be more patient and kind. Paul is telling us love is patient and kind. Our endeavor then must be not to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and be something that we're not. It's to get more of God's love inside of us. We are to chase after love. In fact, I think it would be appropriate to end this entire series with a single phrase. The way Paul himself ends the series in the following two words at the beginning of the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. You see those two words? Pursue love. That's how Paul wraps it up. And that's how we should wrap it up too. I'm going to ask uh, the team to come out as we transition into a time of reflection and response, repentance if needed, recalibration of our hearts to what God has spoken to us. And as we do that, perhaps you're saying, I don't even know the first thing about pursuing love. Let me give you three things to just chew on today. As we sing, as we pray, as we get on our faces if need be. First, you have to, if I understand the Bible correctly, it always starts at the bottom. You've got to admit that you don't have enough of love itself. You've got to stop with the illusions and with the self-preservation and the self-justification and you have to reach a point in your life where you're broken enough to say, I am in trouble without some outside intervention. The classic 12-step programs are so good at doing this. They bring you to the bottom. Or they let you fall to the bottom. We too must fall to the bottom and say, I do not have enough love. 
The second thing is at the bottom, you must recognize that that love is exactly what you need the most and that it comes from outside of yourself. It comes from God in Christ. And the third thing you can do is begin to ask for it in faith with a glimmer of hope that God will give you the love that you're asking for. And it'll change your life. And it will cause you to do things that you never would have signed up to do. So count the cost, because God's love is no joke, but it is exactly what your hurting, empty heart and mine need as well. If you're sensing a desire for God's love, admit that you don't have enough, Recognize that you need it, that it comes from him, and ask like a child. God, I need it. Catch me. And he always will. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we pursue you now, continue to pursue you, that you would fill us up with your love. As your word says, you're the one who fills the human heart abroad uh, with the love of the Holy Spirit, the love of the Father poured abroad into our heart by the Spirit. And so I guess we just want to surrender ourselves to you as we sing. Perhaps some of us don't even know what to pray or to say. Maybe singing words about these things will help us to just mouth our, our surrender to you, our posture of that little bit of faith that we have. And You know our hearts, God. Some of us We're barely hanging on. All we have to offer is just a kernel of faith. But you, Lord, you said that's all it would take is a a faith like a mustard seed. So, Lord, we come before you today as kids who are broken and hurting, lost, confused, or maybe just disillusioned, tired. We offer to you the little that we have, and we ask that you would exchange it for the wealth that you have. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.